Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chinese History Podcast. I'm Yi Ming Ha. In 1644, the last Ming Emperor hung himself as peasant rebels near the capital of Beijing. A short time later, the Qing, a state founded by a semi-nomadic group of people from northeast China known as the Manchus, defeated the rebels and interned Beijing, establishing it as their own capital. Yet Ming resistance did not end with the death of the last Ming Emperor, for pro-Ming regimes would fight on for decades afterwards. One of these regimes was the Zheng regime, based in coastal Fujian and Taiwan. That fought the Qing until its demise in 1683, almost four decades after the fall of the Ming. Joining me to talk about this fascinating regime is Professor Xin Hong, an associate professor of history at Brandeis University. Professor Hong is both a scholar of China and of the East Asia Maritime world. His first project is about the Zheng organization in Taiwan, its role in 17th-century East Asia maritime trade, and how it defined its legacy. And he has published extensively on the topic. His research on this topic has also greatly informed his more recent project, which is on Chinese communities in Southeast Asia from the 17th to the 21st centuries. Welcome, Professor Hong, to the Chinese History Podcast. Thank you. So recently, there has been a lot of talk on the media about tensions between mainland China and Taiwan. But even before the 1949 KMT retreat to Taiwan and the establishment of dueling regimes, both claiming to be China. We saw something similar play out in the second half of the 17th century between the Manchu Qing and the Zheng regime on Taiwan. Now, the most famous figure of this regime is undoubtedly Zheng Chenggong or Koxinga, as he is better known, and he is most famous for driving the Dutch out of Taiwan and for establishing a base there to fight the Manchu Qing. And for a long time, he was seen as a Chinese nationalist figure or even a Han nationalist figure. However, he inherited this regime from his father Zheng Zhilong, and it was Zheng Zhilong who built up the Zheng organization. So, before we talk about Zheng Chenggong, can you start off by talking about who was Zheng Zhilong and how did he become so wealthy and powerful? Okay, sure. Yeah, Zheng Zhilong was in many ways a highly cosmopolitan figure, and it's actually very hard to juxtapose him to his son. Because Zheng Zhilong seems a lot more cosmopolitan, a lot more opportunistic, and you can see him moving between different ethnicities, different national groups with relative ease. When he was young, he actually went to Macau. He supposedly converted to Catholicism and associated very well with the Portuguese, although the sincerity of that conversion is rather questionable. He would later get on a ship to Japan, and while he was in Japan at Hirado, which was the main port for overseas trade, together with Nagasaki at the time, he was able to move relatively freely between Chinese merchants, the Japanese,、um, especially the Japanese daimyo and his retainers, and also the Dutch. So he actually married the daughter. Of one of the retainers of the Japanese daimyo of Hirado, but it was not long after his marriage that he actually went to Taiwan together with Chinese pirates, and the Chinese pirates actually collaborated very well with the Dutch. Zheng Zhilong was probably conducting piratical raids in the Taiwan Strait with Dutch blessing. But around the early 1620s, he began really striking it out on his own. So he actually formed his own piratical force, and then 
he began attacking the mainland shore. So Xiamen, the Guangdong coast. And at the end of the decade, he managed to surrender to the Ming dynasty and become a Ming official. He really had a very colorful past going from growing up in Trenzhou in Fujian, which was itself, you know, very open at the time. I think his association are even more for even his contemporaries in the Trenzhou area. You mentioned pirates, and for those of us who study Ming history, we know that the 1520s to maybe around the 1560s saw a wave of so-called Japanese pirates or wokou, who were mainly Chinese, and they were pirating because of a maritime ban that the Ming had put in place, which stopped maritime trade, overseas maritime trade. But this ban was rescinded in the 1560s, and maritime trade resumed. So why was there still piracy going on? This actually has a lot to do with the appearance of the Dutch in East Asian waters. The Dutch had established their trading posts in Southeast Asia, as well as at Hirado. And they wanted a base that was close to the Chinese coastline, just like Macau. And so Dutch ships actually utilized their naval supremacy to wreak havoc in the China Seas, as well as the Taiwan Strait. And the Taiwan Strait was actually very crucial because it was a very convenient passageway between Macau, Manila, and Nagasaki. It was, it was quite a crucial route for Chinese junks. So the Dutch conducted a lot of missions there. I mean, you know, piracy and privateering, what have you. And that actually created a lot of disturbance along the Chinese coastline. And so many opportunistic Chinese like Zhen Zhilong, but there were other people like Yan Sichi or Li Dan, again, using Japan as a base and then also establishing subsidiary bases in Taiwan. And from these places, actually creating a lot of damage, not just to the Portuguese and the Spanish, but to Chinese ships as well that were sailing from Macau and Manila to Nagasaki. And so you can think about Zhen Zhilong in that wider context, taking advantage of this Dutch infiltration into East Asian waters. I see. But then afterwards, you said he transitioned to a Ming official. Why did he decide to give up his piracy and become a Ming official? And after he became an official, how did he further develop his organization? I think it's a matter of trying to gain fame as well as legitimacy for himself. I think it's quite difficult to advance further in the ranks of the Dutch East India Company. I mean, you could become a Chinese community leader somewhere, but for someone who is ambitious like Jun, he probably wanted a better name for himself. And I think the best way to do it would be to somehow coerce the Ming into granting him an official title. And this seemed to have been a practice among the Ming before. If you can't beat him, join him, right? So if the Ming cannot really overwhelm you on the seas, then they'll try to entice you by means of ranks and titles. And so I think Zhen Zhilong played upon that. And he also, I think, made sure that he could bring his own troops, his own private organization onto the side of the Ming together. So as to prevent a situation whereby he surrendered himself, the rest of his network refuses to follow and he gets killed by the Ming government which has happened before to individual pirate leaders. So he managed to negotiate a deal whereby he and his core group of supporters surrendered to the Ming, and they became the key military officials in Fujian. 
And Chen Zhong actually utilized his new position in Fujian, which was the military commander of Fujian, to privatize the entire military installation in the province. So he basically installed his family members and his close subordinates into key positions. And he was also able to expand the range of his influence to southern Zhejiang and eastern Guangdong. And the way that he gained the trust of the Ming court was to mobilize his forces against piracy. He was actually able to get rid of a lot of his Chinese pirate competitors and even inflict a defeat upon the Dutch when they tried to seize or to acquire privileges on the Chinese coastline in places like Xiamen. And another thing that he did utilizing his position in Fujian was to conduct maritime trade. So one of the things that Zheng Zhilong was able to do was to send his ships like an official mission directly to Nagasaki. And if you know, the Ming, even though they legalized private trade in 1567, the ban on direct trade between China and Japan remained. So Chinese junks could only sail to Southeast Asian ports. But what Zheng Zhilong did was he sent his ships directly from the Fujian coast to Nagasaki. And as a result, he was able to gain fabulous fortunes because he essentially monopolized that entire route. And he was also able to forcibly sell licenses to all Chinese shipping. If you want to sail from Fujian to Nagasaki as a private ship, you can do so, but you have to purchase licenses from Zhenzhelong. And actually, the same went for many Southeast Asian ports. He was able to acquire a dominant position in those kinds of routes as well. So he became fabulously wealthy, and he also had a lot of power as a result. Well, it sounds like he had it pretty good in the last years of the Ming. Was the Ming unwilling, or would you say unable to stop him, or maybe a bit of both? I mean, he's disobeying the court in sending ships to Japan. Yeah, certainly the Ming is unwilling. And I think especially during the 1630s, when the Ming still had quite a bit of power, they tried to bring Zhenzhelong away from his bases on the maritime coastline. So for instance, the Ming court sent Zhenzhelong to fight bandits in the mountains of Fujian. And there was also cases where the Ming was trying to recruit other Chinese pirates to try to counterbalance Zhenzhelong. So there were people like Li Kuiqi, as well as Liu Xiang. The Ming all tried to court these piratical competitors of Zheng Zhilong. But the problem with these piratical competitors is that they were used to a life of piracy. They would submit to the Ming, but then maybe a few weeks later, a few months later, they would again conduct raids and piratical attacks. So they were even more undependable than Zheng Zhilong. And, you know, bringing Zheng Zhilong into the interior to fight bandits was not a sustainable proposition because most of his relatives, a lot of his subordinates were still entrenched along the coastline. And then when you move into the 1640s, the Ming was already preoccupied with the Manchu threat. So it was no longer able to take care of Zheng Zhilong along the coast. The 1640s was indeed a very chaotic time. It was also during this time when Zheng Zhilong ultimately decided to surrender to the Manchus. But his son, Zheng Chenggong, decided to pick up the pro-Ming anti-Manchu banner. So why did father and son decide to go on such radically different path? So I think this opposition between father and son was played up by Zheng Chenggong, I think, first of all. 
because he was he himself was already crafting a legend for himself and this was picked up upon by later generations of Qing and modern scholars it's a really good story right father against son it has the classic plot of a tragedy but in reality i think revisiting the primary sources the reality is more complex so jinjilong did not outright surrender to the manchus actually more precisely he went to the manchu camp to try to negotiate with them to get a good deal so he was contemplating thoughts about surrender and the offer that the manchus gave him was very very attractive the manchus offered him three coastal provinces so zhejiang fujian as well as guangdong and Zhenzhilong could call the shots in these three provinces. He could rule over it as a kind of feudatory, just like Wu Sangui, for instance, in southwestern China. So this was a very, very sweet deal. And he had a lot of autonomy. And he was certainly willing to negotiate with the Manchus. Now, Zhen Chenggong was opposed to Zhenzhilong negotiating with the Manchus. And it's not just Zhen Chenggong. It's actually a lot of his relatives. And the key reason was not merely because of loyalism to the Ming. I think there definitely was Ming loyalism involved. For all of these Han Chinese officials in Fujian, the thought of shaving their heads, I mean, I mean that was a very difficult step to take. And I think it was Zhen Chenggong himself who mentioned in a source, I forgot which one, but he mentioned that nobody likes to have a head that looks like a fly, right? Which is in reference to the shaven Manchu cube. But I think for practical purposes, they believed that the Manchus were not trustworthy. If Zhenzhilong went and negotiated with the Manchus, they would use some kind of pretext to endanger his life and also shut down the entire movement. So they actually believed that the offer was too good to be true. So Zhen Chenggong and his relatives refused to accompany Zhenzhilong in negotiations. So from the Manchu perspective, when they saw Zhenzhilong accompanied by just a few individuals coming to the Manchu camp, they also felt that Zhenzhilong was not sincere. Because if you were sincere, you would say you would have your entire family, all of your troops come onto the side of the Manchus. That didn't happen, right? It was just Zhenzhilong himself. And so the Manchus felt that Zhenzhilong was insincere. He probably was not serious about surrendering. It was kind of mistrust and misunderstanding on both sides. And in the end, what happened was that as the negotiations were underway, the Manchus put on a big feast for Zhenzhilong. But at the end of the third day of feasting, basically they took Zhenzhilong hostage and brought him to Beijing. So there wasn't even a final deal that was clinched or that Zhenzhilong even agreed definitively to surrender to the Manchus. And so he was carried away. And I think that actually brought a lot of disorder and disunity to his organization. So many of Zhen Zhilong's relatives tried to struggle to bring together the organization. And in the end, Zhen Chenggong triumphed. But it was only after a brief but vicious power struggle where he actually killed some of his uncles or banished them. That's very different the way that this story goes compared to the one you often hear, which is that Zheng Zhilong surrendered. And then Zheng Chenggong decided not to surrender. It's definitely a lot more complicated. And it really makes us wonder whether or not the Manchus would have went ahead with their end of the deal. Given how they treated the other surrender generals like Shang Keqi, Wu Sangui, maybe they would have honored it. But again, we don't know. But let's go back and talk about Zheng Chenggong for a minute. Because you said by this time, he's already a legend. 
what was his background? If I remember correctly, he was at one point even adopted by a Ming pretender. His background, I think, is so I would say there are similarities to his father, but there's also key differences. So I think in terms of his background, it's very cosmopolitan. But as he grew older, as he grew up, I think he became more channeled into a traditional Chinese figure. Chen Chenggong was actually born in Japan, and he had a Japanese mother who was Chen Zhilong's Japanese wife. And you can actually think of him as half Chinese or even an overseas Chinese, right? In his early life, he grew up in Hirado, and his early training was like that of a samurai. Very typical of samurai families, learning how to use the sword. But around 1630 or so, when he was about six years old, his father recalled him to China because he wanted Chen Chenggong there because Chen Chenggong was the eldest son. And the eldest son had a lot of responsibility in traditional Chinese clans. So he was brought onto a ship and went to Quanzhou, where his father was based. Chen Chenggong was a very young boy. He grew up in a Japanese environment. And now at the age of six, he had to transition to a homeland that he never really knew. I mean, he was basically going to China for the very first time. So when he was there, actually, he was considered very different. His relatives viewed him with a very strange glance. He probably had to pick up the Chinese language. It was definitely an adjustment for him, but he did make the adjustment. His father put him through a Confucian education, and he actually passed the civil service examinations. He actually studied under some of the greatest scholars of his day, such as Chen Qianyi. Around the time of his maturity was when the Ming fell. And after Beijing fell to the Manchus in 1644, it was a very chaotic time. You mentioned that there were many Ming pretenders. So there was a Ming pretender in Nanjing. He fell very soon. And then there was a Ming pretender in Fuzhou whom Zhen Zhilong actually upheld for a period of time. And it was actually this Ming pretender whom Zhen Chenggong paid a visit. And the story goes that the pretender was so impressed by Zhen Chenggong that he basically adopts him and gives him the Ming surname of Zhu. So he becomes known also as Zhu Chenggong. And this is where Koxinga comes from. Koxinga is Guo Xingye in the Minnanese dialect, which is Lord of the Imperial Surname. And that's actually one of his claims to legitimacy, how he was able to rally a lot of his followers along the Fujian coast, which is this claim to Ming authenticity derived from this association with the Ming pretender. And this was how he was able to lead a Ming resistance movement without a Ming pretender near him. I mean, he later recognized another one who was very, very far away. But I think one reason why his movement was so cohesive was because of that association with the Ming pretender. I think it's so interesting when you think about it that Zheng Chongguang as a figure that Chinese nationalists looked up upon was actually half Japanese, but somehow, whether it's true or not, ends up getting adopted into the Ming imperial family. I mean, his identity is just so fascinating. As you said, after Zheng Zhilong was put under house arrest by the Manchus in Beijing, his organization faced a lot of chaos, but Zheng Chenggong triumphed and took control of it. 
And then he proceeded to invade Taiwan, which at the time was a colony of the Dutch. What motivated him to go to Taiwan? And why was he successful in claiming the island from the Dutch? Since before that time, I don't think it was ever under the control of any polity based in mainland China. Yeah, the story of Taiwan and its occupation by the Chen is a very interesting one. There was no Chinese political presence on Taiwan in the early 17th century, but Chen Zhilong definitely had some kind of presence on Taiwan. The exact nature of that presence, that kind of influence, remains very poorly studied. And you know, honestly, I was in a hurry to get that book out because there were career pressures. So I did not really have a chance to study in depth, but I'm sure there's materials in the Dutch records or even the Chinese records about Chen Zhilong and what his influence is on Taiwan. These influences probably occurred while he was a pirate and may have consisted of his pirate associates. Some of them stayed on in Taiwan. So there was a very colorful individual whom Antonio Andrada talks a lot about in his book and in some of his articles. His name was He Tingbing, otherwise known as Pinkwa. And Pinkwa became the largest landowner and biggest merchant on Taiwan under the Dutch. And Zhen Zhilong certainly had some connections with him. And it oftentimes seemed like He Tingbing was the Zhen's agent rather than a kind of subject of the Dutch East India Company. And eventually, in 1660 or so, when there were problems with the Dutch East India Company, He Tingbing actually defected to Xiamen and sought refuge with Zhen Chenggong. And it was He Tingbing who played the instrumental role in drawing maps of Taiwan and guiding the Zhen fleets to Taiwan, as a matter of fact. So there definitely were connections. Now, what happened after Zhen Zhilong became a main official, we really don't know. But apparently those connections continued even under Zhen Chenggong. So Zhen Chenggong definitely had something like a shadow government on Taiwan. So it was not some kind of terra incognita for him. So what were some of his reasons for actually launching the campaign on Taiwan? I think the key reason is because of Qing pressure on the mainland. So there were probably two factors. So one factor is that Zhen Chenggong, through his trading networks with East and Southeast Asia, he grew incredibly wealthy. He enjoyed trading partnerships with multiple countries in the region, and he was able to use a lot of that profit to fund a very powerful navy, and he was able to put together a strong force that was even able to launch an invasion of Nanjing in 1659. So he had grown very powerful, not just as a maritime, but also a terrestrial force. But on the other hand, strategically, the situation on the mainland was turning against him. And this was because the Qing was increasingly triumphant. It was defeating Ming loyalist challenges one after another. And there was this big fear that the Qing would eventually be able to concentrate all of its forces against the southeastern frontier. And I think that was Zhen Chenggong's main fear. And another incident that really sort of scared him, and I think he was very prophetic in this regard, was that the Qing, once they seized a city in Fujian along the coast, they began emptying that city. You know, if you know what happened afterwards, right, the Qing initiated its brutal coastal removal policy. And I think Zhen Chenggong foresaw that. 
And so I think from the perspective of his power, as well as what's going to be happening in his weakening position in regards to the Manchus, launching an invasion of Taiwan, even though it was risky, definitely made sense. So he could make use of his sphere of influence on the island, his connections with the Chinese mercantile community, and also his advantages in terms of numbers to drive the Dutch away. I recall when I was a little kid, I read a history book for kids. And the narrative was basically Zheng Chuanggong sailed there, had a big fight, kicked the Dutch out, and claimed Taiwan for China. Was it as straightforward as how it's described in general or popular history books? There is a degree of accuracy to this, right? But then again, the process was by far not as smooth as what's described in these popular narratives. First of all, the entire process of occupying Taiwan was incredibly difficult because, you know, as Tonio Andrada mentions in his book, Lost Colony, the Dutch had advantages in terms of their ships, in terms of their fortress, and in terms of their weapon. And it was a learning curve, actually, for Zhen Chenggong in trying to drive the Dutch away. As I mentioned that the Zhen had an overwhelming advantage in terms of numbers, but how do you translate those numbers into a military advantage? I think that was what Zhen Chenggong really had to deal with. It took nine months for something like, I don't know, 50,000 troops, 100,000 troops, I forgot the exact number, to overwhelm the Dutch who numbered like a few thousand at the very most. So the initial phases of the campaign were quite smooth, but once the Dutch withdrew into their main fortress in Fort Zelandia, that was when it became difficult because the Jun, they tried to take the fortress, but the Dutch were able to utilize the advantages of the fort combined with artillery to drive the Jun back. And the Jun really had no choice but to surround the fortress and hopefully, you know, use siege methods to starve the Dutch into surrender. And eventually, I think what Zhen Chubong had to do was to recruit European specialists who defected over to their side to figure out, you know, how to crack the advantage of the Zelandia fortress. And eventually they were able to do so to inflict very heavy damage on the Dutch and the Dutch surrendered. But it took nine months and it was definitely a learning curve. In terms of claiming the island for China, that is true. But this point also has to be explained. So I mentioned to you before that Zhen Zhilong had influence on this island. So Zhen Chenggong, in his communications with the Dutch, he basically told the Dutch, this island once belonged to my father, and it now belongs to me by way of inheritance. And, you know, his father had certain rights on Taiwan. Zhen Chenggong claimed that Zhen Zhilong only lent the island to the Dutch. They allowed the Dutch to use the island. And now it was time for them to return it. And there was also another letter in which Zhen Chenggong told the Dutch, the island and its people belong to China. The Chinese living in Taiwan have always belonged to the Ming. He definitely made that claim. And he was probably the first Chinese person ever on record to make that claim. The whole campaign itself is very interesting. I mean, there's so many different facets from which you can study it. And you mentioned the use of European experts, European cannons, there's defectors going back and forth, and this nine-month siege. So it definitely wasn't easy by any standard, certainly not as easy as some of the history books make it out to be. And I think it's just 
really fascinating that he is the first person on record to say that this island belongs to China. Of course, we might have to consider the meaning of China in the late Ming period, whether or not it means the same as China today. I think while the siege was taking place, he also launches his major expedition against the Qing, and he makes it all the way to Nanjing, which was the capital of the Ming, and it becomes the second capital. So capturing it would have had a lot of symbolic value for his resistance movement, but he ultimately fails to capture Nanjing, and he's utterly defeated and driven all the way back to Fujian. Why did that campaign fail? Just a little bit of a factual kind of adjustment. The Nanjing campaign actually occurred before he launched his campaign against Taiwan. So I think the Nanjing campaign was in 1659. Actually, this northern expedition lasted for quite a bit of time. Actually, as early as 1655 or so, Zhen Chenggong was already planning a long-term northern expedition. And the expedition itself went in several stages. So part of it would go up into northern Fujian and then to Zhejiang and usually along the coastline. But the forays would go more and more to the north. But of course, the big campaign occurred in 1658 when it was a land and sea combined operation. The troops marched deep into Jiangsu from Shanghai. So the ships would first sail up to what is today present-day Shanghai. It would go up the Yangtze River, and then there would be troops as well that would de-embark in along the Yangtze and then surrounding Nanjing. And it very nearly succeeded, but there are tactical as well as strategic reasons for its failure. I think tactically, Zhen Chenggong was a bit too dilatory. This was either because of overconfidence or because most of his men came from Fujian. They were probably not that accustomed to the environment in Jiangnan. So fighting in Jiangnan on land was obviously very different from fighting off islands off the coast of Fujian. You know, very different climate, very different terrain. So maybe that's why Zhen Chenggong wanted to be dilatory. Or he could have just been very confident. And in fact, even while they had Nanjing completely surrounded, Zhen Chenggong still stopped to celebrate his birthday. And eventually, as Nanjing was laid siege to, discipline broke down among his troops. So some of his troops actually went fishing. The siege itself is by no means a complete encirclement. So as a result, a Qing force coming in from Guizhou that was just victorious over the Ming, was able to slip into the city gates, and they were able to launch a counterattack. And by that point, the Jin forces were very low in morale, and they quickly collapsed, and it became a rout, and they were driven all the way back to Fujian, as you mentioned. But I think the more strategic issue was that by 1658-1659, Zhen Chenggong was too late. All of his allies were pretty much eliminated. If you think about the Yongli emperor, who was the last Ming pretender, he had already been driven to the far frontiers of Yunnan. And he even had to leave China altogether into Myanmar. And Wu Sangui's forces were able to pursue them, occupy Yunnan, go into Myanmar, and eventually kill the last Ming pretender. So there were no more allies in the Ming loyalist movement whom... Zhen Chenggong could depend upon. So even if he had occupied Nanjing, it's by no means certain that he could hold on to it for a very long time. 
So maybe then the failure of the Nanjing expedition also played a role in his decision to go to Taiwan. I mean, it must have been a major defeat. He would have lost a lot of men, ships, and supplies. Absolutely. A lot of his soldiers were killed fighting in the mountains near Nanjing, as well as the retreat back to Fujian. And in 1660, right after the Nanjing campaign, the Qing actually put together all of the naval forces that it could muster and try to attack Xiamen. The Qing were routed, but it was a very bad harbinger of things to come. And also combined, like I mentioned to you earlier, right, the Qing began removing the population of the coastline that they occupied. So Zhen Chenggong had this feeling that the Qing were able to concentrate all its resources against him. And because they occupied most of the coastline, this means that a lot of his provisions, his trading supplies, they're going to be cut off. So in many ways, if he didn't invade Taiwan, he would always be fighting defense. And one day, he probably couldn't take it anymore. I mean, he's going to be exterminated. Right. So if I remember correctly, he conquers Taiwan in 1661, but then he dies immediately the next year. Yet his regime carries on for another two decades under his son, Zheng Jing. So what happened to the Zheng regime after his death? How did it fare in the two decades before it was finally exterminated by the Qing? So it's very interesting. Zhen Jing, actually, it was really under him. Zhen Chenggong kind of set the precedent a little bit. He got the ball rolling. But it was really under Zhen Jing in which Taiwan made a transition into a fully-fledged state that's known as the Dongning Kingdom. And I think the Dongning Kingdom saw itself probably as a tributary vassal of the Ming Dynasty. I think it came to see itself very similar to Korea, where the Ming customs and rituals and hairstyles lived on in the form of an independent kingdom. So while Zhen Jing was still recognizing the Ming and counting the years in the name of the dead Ming pretender, he really set out to forge independent institutions. So for instance, he actually created a bureaucracy in Taiwan, a system of land taxation, administrative divisions. And he also dealt with other countries as an independent actor. So for instance, he established relations with the English East India Company. So the English were allowed to set up a trading post and the English actually called him the King of Taiwan. Another interesting thing that happened under Zheng Jing was that he and the Qing court actually engaged in several rounds of negotiations. And these negotiations are really, really interesting because Zheng Jing, in his communications to the Qing, actually emphasized that Taiwan does not belong to the Middle Kingdom. So this is like a 180-degree turn from Zheng Chenggong, right? So he's basically saying that Taiwan is not a part of the Middle Kingdom, and he wants to be treated as a tributary state of the Qing, just like Korea. And what does the Korea example mean? It basically means that the Jin and their subjects do not need to shave their heads. They can continue wearing Ming dynasty costumes, observing Ming ritual. And the remarkable thing on the Qing side is that the Qing do not dispute that. They too feel that Taiwan was, you know, what they call Hua Wai Zhidi, right? It's a place outside of the pale. It's definitely outside of the Middle Kingdom. But for the Qing, 
Zhen Jing and his followers were Chinese. And if they were Han subjects of the Qing, they had to shave their heads. And that was the deal breaker for both sides. They, they simply could not reach any kind of consensus. You co-edited a book with Tonio Andrade. In one of your chapters, you talked about this kind of new notion of China that was developed by Zheng Jing, where the idea of China becomes divorced from geographical connotations in native place, and the emphasis then instead shifts to customs, religion, culture, dress of the Han ethnic group. Do you think there are any parallels with what's going on there with the later development of Taiwan under the KMT regime when Chiang Kai-shek moved there? I mean, he too lost control of China and had to set up a regime in Taiwan. Do you see any parallels there or is it completely different? Of course, the historical context and the events are completely different. But you're right, there are surprising parallels between the two examples. So for instance, once Jinjing relocated to Taiwan, there was an increasing turn away from the mainland, even though the rhetoric was still, you know, restoring the Ming, opposing the Qing. And it was definitely towards the development of Taiwan itself, as well as an emphasis on the sea lanes going towards Japan, as well as Southeast Asia. So what you see under Jinjing were very aggressive overseas ventures. For instance, Jin partisans established a foothold in the Mekong River Delta of present-day southern Vietnam, as well as Cambodia, and they founded colonies there, as a matter of fact. There were ambitious attempts to expand into the Philippines and replicate the example of Taiwan. There was also attacking the Ryukyu tribute ships that were going to the Qing dynasty and, and actually claiming that the Ryukyu tribute mission was paying tribute to barbarians. So there, there were definitely a very aggressive overseas ventures. And a lot of these overseas ventures were also in the name of protecting Chinese subjects in these places. So there seemed to also have been a kind of stewardship or protector of overseas Chinese communities. So, so I think that's really interesting. And, and there is a kind of, oh, and I also, also forgot to say that, you know, once there was the rebellion of the three feudatory that uh, broke out on the mainland, Jinjing completely turned away from the overseas and went back on the mainland to fight against the Qing. And so I think that all these events show surprising parallels to the KMT. So the KMT, once they went to Taiwan, they also talked about retaking the mainland. And when opportunities presented themselves, there were also raids and attacks on the mainland coast. But at the same time, you also see very aggressive efforts by the nationalist government on Taiwan as a kind of spokesperson or a protector of overseas Chinese communities. The, you know, the founding of Chinese schools abroad, the establishment of Kuomintang party branches in many overseas communities. So yeah, there definitely are these parallels. But of course, circumstances are different. You know, the Cold War is obviously a very different time from the Ming-Qing transition. There are many differences, but I think the Kuomintang themselves were very, very conscious of the parallels. And that's why they really brought Zhen Chenggong to the front and center as a kind of rallying point for their own regime on Taiwan. Yeah, I remember reading that chapter and I was just struck by some of the parallels that we saw later on with the KMT in Taiwan as well. 
And it's just fascinating that there was this attempt to invade the Philippines. I know the Spanish actually took it very seriously. They were very concerned that they were going to be driven out. And we can only imagine what history would have been like had the Zheng succeeded in taking over the Philippines. But unfortunately, as you said, they turned their attention back to the mainland with the revolt of the three feudatories. And shortly after that, they were defeated by the Qing in the early 1680s. Why did this regime ultimately fall, despite having survived for such a long time? So I think the reasons for its fall are numerous. You could think about immediate reasons, such as the defeat of Zhenjing and the rebellion of the three feudatories, the fact that the Qing was able to utilize a lot of Zhen defectors to create a naval force from scratch and basically defeat the Zhen navy. And I think this is also an episode that's very much overlooked in maritime history, which is the Qing experience a rejuvenation in its naval power during the 1680s, both in the lead up and the aftermath of the fall of the Zhen on Taiwan, because of you know, what they were able to do. It's not just using Zhen defectors. They actually established shipyards that engaged in massive naval construction throughout the mainland Chinese coastline. And they were able to put together very powerful and sturdy ships. So, so that really led to a rejuvenation of Chinese maritime power. You have these kinds of reasons. And of course, there was a succession struggle on Taiwan because Zheng Jing died. And Zheng Keshuang, who was Zheng Jing's son, he was actually not the legitimate successor. There were ministers that schemed and plotted and actually put Zheng Keshuang on the throne as a kind of figurehead. But I think the longer term reason could be found in Zhenjing's decision to join the rebellion of the three feudatories. And I think this had a lot to do with the Ming loyalist ideology. I'm saying this not in the sense that the Zhen were such ardent Ming loyalists that they could see no other alternative. They were ideologues and they were just unswervingly loyal. I don't think so. I think the Zhen utilized Ming loyalism. They got a lot of capital out of it, and they used it in an opportunistic fashion. But at the same time, Ming loyalism also had the ability to constrain their actions. So for instance, if Wu Sangui rose up in revolt, Gen Jingzhong rose up in revolt, initially, they carried the Ming loyalist banner. They were basically saying, we're going to restore the Ming, we'll restore Han rule. And they want to get Jinjing to join. I mean, this is, from the perspective of Jinjing, a Ming loyalist restoration. Are you going to join or are you not? How can you not join? If you refuse to join and just stay there, this could lead to a lot of problems in regards to your own subjects, right? And keep in mind, you know, for a lot of the Han Chinese subjects of the Jin, Taiwan was this wild barbarian island full of aboriginal savages, right? And many people there did see Taiwan as a place of temporary exile. So when the opportunity was there to return home to Fujian, there was a lot of pressure to do so. So in a way, then their own banner of Ming loyalism led to their downfall. I do want to talk a little bit about the aftermath of their defeat. So starting from Zheng Zhilong, there was this trade with Southeast Asia, there was trade with Japan, there was trade with the Europeans, and this was carried by Zheng Chenggong and Zheng Jing. And because of the success of this trade, they were able to fund these military ventures against Qing, against the Dutch. 
So what happened to this trade after their organization collapsed? Did the Qing manage to take it over or did the trade become dismantled? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So under the Jun, this overseas trade was really run as a kind of quasi-monopoly, right? Where you had the Jun family doing business on their own account. You had private merchants kind of purchasing trading passes and making the Jun incredibly wealthy. After Taiwan's fall, there were attempts by defected Zhen commanders to take control of this network. And Shi Long was actually the person who came closest to succeeding. Shi Long was the commander of the successful naval expedition against Peng Hu that led to Taiwan's surrender. And afterward, he basically commanded the Fujian Navy and he actually sent his naval forces throughout Southeast Asia and Japan to basically tell the Zhen merchants that were based over there to surrender. And it was he who mostly played the role in accepting that surrender. And it was his hope that he could inherit the Zhen organization and run a monopoly. And so Zhen Weizhong actually writes about this. He actually played a double game where he tried to persuade the Kangxi emperor to incorporate Taiwan into the Qing empire, but he also tried to give Taiwan back to the Dutch. And so his purpose was actually pitting the Dutch and the Qing against each other and making himself the role of a middleman who could bring order. But the Kangxi emperor, I think Shilong was no match for the Kangxi emperor. He saw through Shilong's scheming. And in 1684, he basically said, we're going to throw open all private maritime trade. So establishing custom stations and everything. So which means that there's no need for any middleman. There's no need for Shilong or the Zhen organization or anyone. Basically, the Qing state replaced the Zhen. The customs duties at the toll houses would be paid to the Qing state. And as long as those tolls were paid, all Chinese merchants could go anywhere they wanted to Japan and to Southeast Asia. And so I would say until the early 18th century, this was actually one of the freest times for private trade in Chinese and even East Asian history. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of tendency to see the Manchus as a land-based empire, really closed off from the rest of the world. But if we were to look at some of the policies, they were very encouraging of foreign maritime trade. Even later on, when they tried to regulate it, they didn't outright ban it. So how do you think the Zheng, and in particular Zheng Chenggong, is seen today? What are some of his legacies in mainland China and in Taiwan? I know that in years past, Zheng Chenggong was seen as a nationalist figure. Is that still the case today? So maybe we can start with Taiwan and then we can move to mainland China. In the case of Taiwan, I think the image of the Zhen as a whole has turned very negative under the DPP administration. So I think initially the kind of pro-Taiwan identity, pro-independence camp viewed the Zhen more positively as founders of an independent kingdom. It had the tendency to go in that particular direction. There was for a period of time a transition of the Zhen as being Ming loyalists and wanting to restore Ming rule towards founders of an independent kingdom on Taiwan. However, recently, I think especially after Tsai Ing-wen took power, the Zhen are now more viewed as outsider colonialists 
a, a group of people who basically raped Taiwan for their own purposes, people who had no commitment to the island. And so there have been two recent incidents that come to my mind that demonstrate this negative attitude. So one is that in front of the Tainan train station, there's a statue of Zhen Chenggong. And there's been cases of vandalism against that particular statue. And then the second is that there are now plans to rename the fortress that Zhen Chenggong conquered. So it's called Anping Gubao. So the ancient fortress of Anping. And Anping is actually the name that's given to that part of Taiwan by Zhen Chenggong and his son Zhen Jing. So the authorities are now going to rename it Fort Zelandia because that was the name under the Dutch. So I think the Zhen reputation has taken a turn for the worse in Taiwan. On the mainland, the Zhens have also had a pretty controversial history. I think in classical PRC kind of ideology, the Zhen, especially Zhen Chenggong, are known as the liberators of Taiwan from Dutch imperialism. So people who drove the Dutch imperialists out and reclaimed the island for China. But in the early 2000s, there was a debate about who were the greater heroes in bringing Taiwan back to the motherland. Was it the Zhen family? Or was it Shilong? There was quite a bit of a debate. So during that debate, Zhen Chenggong's legacy became more ambiguous in that, yes, he liberated Taiwan from the Dutch, but he didn't really reunite Taiwan. And in fact, his son, Zhen Jing, he was just an outright Taiwanese independence. You know, he was a separatist and he should be condemned. So Zhen Jing's image became very negative. And Shilong was just this great admiral who reunified the motherland. But I think recently that debate has become rather marginalized. And in fact, the Jun are now more celebrated than before. I think more for the fact that they are now the sort of embodiments of early Chinese sea power. And sea power includes overcoming the Europeans and their sea power and extending China's influence into the East and South China Seas. And if you look at the PRC's strategic priorities, it's gone beyond Taiwan, right? It's towards, you know, staking a claim in the East China Sea, in the South China Seas, right? And looking towards, you know, incorporating the countries nearby too, within its broader sphere of influence. So I think now the Chen are really celebrated as part of that expansion of Chinese naval power abroad. Yeah, it's so interesting to see how the legacy shifts as the political atmosphere shifts and how that legacy is used both in Taiwan and on the mainland for political purposes. But before I let you go, we talked at length about Zheng Chenggong and his actions. We talked a little bit about Zheng Jing, but we didn't really revisit what happened to Zheng Zhilong after he was carted off to Beijing. So what happened to him? Did he live out his days in peace? Yes and no. I think he did live out his days in peace until he was executed. That's the short story. The long story was that the Qing tried to negotiate with Zhen Chenggong. They tried to offer him sort of territorial privileges in Fujian. They gave him some noble titles. If only he would surrender. And Zhen Chenggong basically played upon that to keep his father alive. And so once again, I think this is going off of our earlier conversation, right, about father and son being on opposing sides. 
And what you're seeing here is that Zhen Chenggong is also trying his best to keep his father alive because he knows that as long as he is negotiating with the Qing, then the Qing would find his father to be important as a bargaining chip and the Qing would treat his father well. And that continued until he was defeated outside Nanjing. And then the Qing just turned completely against him, launched campaigns against Zhen Chenggong. And with that, his father could no longer be valuable as a bargaining chip. And once after the Shunzhi emperor died, and Shunzhi was actually very reconciliatory towards Zhen Chenggong and also towards Zhen Zhilong under the Oboi regency. So Kangxi had succeeded to the throne, but he was a young boy. The real power was in the hands of the regents. And they were relatively nativist Manchus, and they did not really like the situation along the coast. And what's more, the Qing discovered letters that were being exchanged between Zhen Chenggong and Zhen Zhilong. And actually, one of the one of the really interesting contents of these letters, I mean, we don't know the exact letters themselves, but there was actually some allusion in these letters where Zhen Zhilong wrote to his son saying, if anything becomes of Fujian, if your enterprise in Fujian was going to be in trouble, there is another world out there in Taiwan. So you might think about Zhen Zhilong as the person, as a fatherly figure, like as the father, right? Instructing his son that, you know, Taiwan is a place of refuge for you if anything goes wrong. And maybe it is that letter that incriminated Zhen Zhilong and eventually ended up with him getting charged of collaboration with the enemy. And actually, he was executed in the marketplace in Beijing in, I think, 1661. I see. So it's a rather inglorious end to such a colorful and once very powerful figure. But with the Qing pressing down, he was really in a difficult position, right? Whether he wanted to fight on or surrender. And in that context, maybe there was not a whole lot he could do. Thank you, Professor Hong, for sharing with us all this wonderful details about the Zheng regime. I know this is a very fascinating regime, a very fascinating period of time, but unfortunately, I think relatively unknown to a lot of people. So I really do want to thank you for coming to the show and getting our listeners more familiarized with this time period. Thank you so much for your kind invitation. All right. Well, that concludes our interview for today. Thank you so much for listening to the Chinese History Podcast.